Hi, and thanks for joining the Think for Yourself podcast. Today's episode is the audio portion of a webinar conversation that Dr. Mantramani hosted on April 30th, 2021 with Chad Foster. We hope you enjoy the discussion. Okay, well, thanks everybody for joining today. Uh, I am absolutely thrilled to have Chad Foster with me here. Uh, Chad's the author of a recent book called Blind Ambition. He's got a really inspiring story uh, and he's just a, a good guy. I've enjoyed my conversations with him and thought I'd share this conversation with all of you. Uh, before we get started, however, let me go through the traditional advertising for prior uh, webinars and podcasts that'll get posted shortly. Uh, you know, uh, I think it was a little over uh, two weeks ago, I had Mike Rogers. Mike is the former congressman from Chicago, former chair of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. He's the guy who allocated $80 billion of money to run the U.S. intelligence infrastructure globally. He's also the guy that ran around the world to tell the Five Eyes partners of the United States, whether it was Australia, New Zealand, the UK, et cetera, that they could not use Huawei equipment because of the 5G risk and surveillance and data that goes back to Beijing. And so a really insightful conversation, penetrating thought process, which uh, all Americans, I think, should listen to. Uh, before that, I had Joan Williams. Joan wrote a book called The White Working Class, uh, a really influential book. Joe Biden endorsed it, arguably one of the more influential books I've read in terms of explaining what's been happening in the political polarization of America. Um, and Joan is a professor at UC Hastings. That replay is available. Before that, I had Sarah Seeger. Sarah is a professor at MIT, um, a, uh, a widow. Uh, her husband passed away when she was 40. Talks about her story in her book, The Smallest Lights in the Universe. But she also won a MacArthur grant as one of these quote unquote geniuses in the world who uh, is figuring out where there may be other planets in the universe that might host life. Uh, and so a really cool conversation with her. Before that, I had Michael Howell wrote a book called Capital Wars about Everyone says there's all this global liquidity and there's all this money. And I needed someone to explain to me what that actually meant. Like, what does it mean that there's all this money? And, and Michael did a great job of that. Uh, before that, I had a fourth grade teacher from Charlottesville, Virginia, talking about the peace game, the world peace game that he created, John Hunter. Uh, John's a really thoughtful individual um, who has been at the forefront of thinking about peaceful uh, learning, empathy, uh, compassion, et cetera. And he talked about stories like being invited in to talk with Leon Panetta at the Pentagon about the world peace game. Uh, and so really cool stories there. Uh, before that, Jim Latinsky, founder, chairman, CEO of MP Materials, America's largest rare earth uh, materials processing company, or mining company, they're going to go into processing. Um, and this is at the strategic forefront of uh, the global competition with China, specifically over rare earths. Um, for that, I had Danielle DiMartino Booth, author of Fed Up. Danielle's a Fed watcher, former Fed insider, and very critical of the Fed. Um, Emily, uh, before from Horizon Advisory, talked about technology standards uh, and specifically payment standards and how there's a global competition for those. Uh, Kevin Warren, Personally, fascinating story based on a little tragedy early in his life that led him into professional sports, uh, commissioner of the Big Ten now. But we talked about what it's like uh, to run an athletic conference in the middle of a pandemic. And, you know, should you pay student athletes and, uh, and what have you? So another really interesting story. Before that, Gilman Louie. Uh, Gilman is uh, a founder of a venture capital firm now, but before that, he started a venture capital firm for the CIA. He started InQtel, uh, and so he told the story of that and, and working with uh, George Tenet and others in government to, to sort of help Americans 
uh, national security from a technology innovation side. Um, and I started off this year with Elliot Higgins. Elliot is a um, is the organizer of Bellingcat. Bellingcat is a collective of citizen journalists and uh, people who use online, open source, and social media to connect the dots. And they were able to identify that Malaysia 17 was shot down by the Russians, not the Ukrainians, before anyone else in the international community were able to. They were able to, again, using public source media, identify that the Syrians had used chemical weapons before anyone else in the world was able to, and they just use open source media. He's been doing some work uh, on a whole bunch of other interesting topics right now. His new book just came out called We Are Bellingcat. So, and then of course, there's the advertisement for my book, Think for Yourself, uh, which is still available. And so um, let me now turn to our wonderful guest today. Chad, thanks for joining me. I appreciate you having me. Look forward to the conversation. <laughs> All right, Chad. So uh, you sent me the book. I read the book, fabulous book. Uh, I think everyone should read it. It's a really inspiring story, but I'm just going to address the elephant in the room and I want you to tell the story. What happened? You went blind. You tell it in the book really, it's a touching, open, honest, sort of uh, very um, heartfelt description of it, but I'd love you to describe it for us here. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, growing up, I had some problems seeing in really dimly lit areas, but other than that, I, I was, I, I played sports growing up. I played football, played basketball, played soccer. I wrestled, I drove a car, rode a bike, rode motorcycles, lived a, a really active life, really active childhood. But my parents noticed I was having problems seeing in really dimly lit areas. So they took me to Duke University where I was diagnosed with RP or retinitis pigmentosa. And that happened when I was pretty young. Then I continued to you know, live as if nothing was wrong because I was so young that I didn't realize something was really wrong. And people were, were telling me and telling my parents that at some point I could go blind. But when you're when you're young and active and you think you're invincible, right, you, you just continue to, to press on as if nothing's going to happen. But then as my eyesight began to fade and it completely went out in college when I was at the University of Tennessee, I was studying to go into the pre-medical field. I wanted to help other people. And then all of a sudden, everything was called into question because I wasn't even sure if I could help myself, let alone help other people. So that was obviously a pretty difficult time. Sure. So, but Chad, that's got to be, I mean, honestly, just you go into a depression, like what happens? Yeah, something completely. That, something that dramatic happens. I mean, what's it like emotionally? What, I mean, what, you describe it a little bit in the book, but I'm curious. Yeah, it's it's pretty rough. You know, now I've I'm, I've I've made it through and I'm I'm in a better place. But at the time, it was extremely difficult, right? I was depressed. I was sad. I was angry. I was bitter, and I was you know calling into question everything, everything I'd hoped and dreamt for, right? All of a sudden. Uh, my self-identity was called into question. You know, we ask kids all the time, what do you want to be when you grow up? But none of them say they want to be blind. So you have to figure out, you know, what are, what are you, what are you going to do? How are you going to reinvent yourself in the face of some pretty dire circumstances? But it was uh, for at least one to two years, it was a brutal period for me because I kept asking, why me, right? Why did this happen to me? Which is a pretty natural reaction for a lot of people when they're going through a difficult time. We all tend to gravitate to have this tone of a victim, 
And it's why, why did this happen to me? And I was, I was not exempt from that. I had that same mindset, that same tone as well for a couple of years. It was a, it was a dark time in my life. So Chad, lots of us have had times where things go up and down, but what I find fascinating is you were able to pull yourself out of it. So what was it? Was there a catalyst? Was there a person? Was there uh, an insight? Where, where did something click with you that said, I don't want to be the victim. I'm going to move forward. Yeah. yeah the, there were a couple of things, honestly. There was, at the time, I had these moments of clarity, I think. And this was sort of the, the minor thing that I kept thinking of. But I realized that I was 20. Two, 23 years old. And I was, if I were to live a, a pretty long and healthy life, you know, 50 years of negativity sounded pretty shitty, right? I mean, who wants to sit around and feel <laughs> yeah. bad for themselves for 50 years? That, that's a whole lot of toxicity. So I realized that that really wasn't sustainable. And so I wasn't really all that crazy about that. And the other thing that was my son making a cameo appearance, sorry about that. Um, the other thing was, I, hey, Jackson, buddy, oh, s- sorry. Hey, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, Daddy's in a meeting. Can you, you're going to need to go in there, buddy, okay? Okay. All right. I'm sorry. Okay. Yep. So keep going. Yeah. So the other thing was when I went to get my first guide dog, I went to Leader Dogs for the Blind in, in Rochester Hills, Michigan. And I went there to get a guide dog, but I ended up getting a whole lot more than just a guide dog. So I show up on campus and there are people there. Some of them are there. They have mental impairments and they're blind. Some of them have uh, diabetes, right? They're on dialysis. And so they're also blind and they're dealing with multiple disabilities going to dialysis weekly. And some of them were deaf and blind and they're getting a guide dog to be independent. And so I roll into campus with this woe is me mentality. Poor me. I'm a victim. And I started to live with these people for, we were there for 26 days. And the experience of witnessing their living courage on a day-to-day basis reshaped forever how I saw the world. It's, It's one thing when you meet someone on the street, but it's completely different when you live with them for an entire month and see their challenges firsthand. That moment was my tipping point. That's when I started to realize that happiness, you know, it's not a feeling. And it's not an emotion. It's a decision that you choose to make each and every single day. And also decided at that point that success is also not an event. It's a mindset. You either choose to accept less than your definition of success or you don't. And so that experience at Leader Dogs forever reshaped my trajectory on life. So I came back, literally, it was as if this switch had flipped with me. And so I came back to campus at the university, my mindset had completely improved. My attitude had completely flipped because I found that at the, at the base, the foundation of perspective, you know, everything's anchored to gratitude. And so my perspective was anchored to this newfound gratitude that I had about the 23 years of eyesight that I'd had, all of the hearing and kidney function and all of my cognitive faculties. And so I started to really appreciate all the things that I've been given. And it took that experience of living with those courageous individuals to teach me that lesson firsthand. And so when you learn it like that, it etches it into your memory in a way you just can't forget. 
Yeah. So Chad, you, you say something in the book, so I'm going to, I hope it's not embarrassing, but it's in the book. So I'm going to go there. Sure, <laughs> you, talk sure. about, you, <laughs> you talked about in the book about, you know, what's wrong with these other people? God, they can't learn how to use the dog. What's wrong with them? And, yeah. and then you learned about their other issues. Yeah. You know, me going in being uh, naive, being ignorant, right? Not understanding that people oftentimes have multiple challenges that they're dealing with. And I think this is true a lot. I've learned it firsthand in my life and that experience, I've learned it as well after going blind. You know, before I went blind, I thought I could imagine what it was like to be blind or to walk in someone else's shoes. But after you go blind, you realize, you know what? I actually could not imagine what it's like to be blind. It's actually a lot more different than I could have ever even begun to imagine. And so that's true as well for these individuals there. They were facing multiple disabilities. That had not even really occurred to me because I was living in my own microcosm, my own little world where I had my basket of issues and I wasn't really thinking outside of that. And I just, I know that we're a collection of the experiences in our lives and never was that more apparent to me than there at Leader Dogs. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I think I'm jumping around, but it, since you talked about coming back to campus and, and studying and going back into into college. Um, there's another hero here beside uh, some of the dogs and some of the clicking that took place for you uh, yep. from, a, from a psychology perspective, but your mom, your mom was reading the textbooks. She literally read every single business book to cassette for me because at the time, you know, this was in 98, 99, yep. there's no, you know, no Kindle, right? No smartphones. The internet was just then taking off. We you didn't have, electronic books that wasn't available. So the only option was for someone to read my books to cassette and that someone was my mom. She read every day and I would, you know, my dad would go to work. He would come home. She would be reading all day. Her voice would get down to a rasp and she kept reading and reading and reading and reading. And that's why I wanted the university to acknowledge that. And they gave her um, an award to, to help acknowledge that back in 2014. But you know, when someone does something like that for you, how do you let them down? Right. And so I decided, you know what, I need to, I need to really apply myself. And it turned out I was a better blind student than sighted student. <laughs> I ended up reading the book twice and listening to the lectures that I recorded twice. And you know, I had a note taker and we would go over the notes. I ended up making all A's in my college of business classes because, you know, I was committed. I had to reevaluate my focus and my effort and my determination, but also couldn't let my mom down. Yep. And um, instead of like a lot of us, we go through college, you know, when you can see, and I was guilty of this myself, I just memorized stuff. I had a really good visual memory, so I could just memorize what I needed to and get through the test. Well, obviously, that was no longer an option, not being able to see. I had to really consume yeah. the information. I had to digest it in a way that I didn't have to before. So it forced me to really lean into the content more than I ever had to before, which, which obviously made it stick more. Yeah. Well, so we'll, we'll come back to, you already jumped ahead, uh, Chad, a little bit of, uh, I was going to raise the fact that later, uh, years later after college, uh, you know, the university uh, bestowed an honor on you. And when they were doing this honor for Chad, Chad insisted that his mother get honored at the same time. And it sounds like a very touching scene. 
uh, that you describe in the book. So, uh, so kudos to, uh, to, to your mom as well. Cause it sounds yeah, like yeah. she probably deserves those A's as much as you do. She, she does. And, and honestly, she, she probably deserves a degree because I'm not sure how many of my classmates read all the books as early <laughs> as she did. Sure. Sure. All right. So Chad, let's turn now to professional, uh, development. So you're sure. at the university you, uh, you graduate, you got great grades, but you got to get a job. Like, I mean, look at the end of the day, living in the world that we all do today, you know, a lot of our identities, a lot of our activities, et cetera, are defined by our professions. Um, maybe not entirely, but some percentage. Uh, so talk about trying to get a job when you're blind. Yeah. You know, when you walk into a job interview with a German shepherd, I don't need to be able to see to know that people are looking at me a little funny, right? Their eyebrows come up a little bit, especially in 99. Even now, though, uh, in the year that we're in, it's a lot more accepted than it was. But back in 99, 2000, 2001, when I was interviewing and going into the office for the first time, I knew that, that eyebrows were coming up. And so it's interesting the kind of reactions that you get from people. And sometimes they're not always the best reactions. People have some natural curiosity. And, and sometimes it's a little bit more than curiosity, maybe a little bit of bias, you know, in terms of what can and cannot be done. And certainly I experienced some of that when I was interviewing. And I, I guess one of the one of the blessings that came out of all of this is my life has really been this experiment of living outside my comfort zone. And so going blind and, and learning the limitations of my eyesight as a youth, and then you know, what I could and, and couldn't see, and then getting a guide dog and being forced to walk into university classes with a hundred pound German shepherd, and then to job interviews and eventually conference rooms and traveling. And, and as, as I've done, we'll talk here in a little bit later on about, you know, the things that I'm doing now to continue to expand my comfort zone. But the, the thing that I think was a real blessing is, is not just the expansion of my comfort zone, but how it forced me to get comfortable with me. So we all, I believe we all have some sort of disability, right? Whether you want to call it a disability or not, right? None of us are perfect. We all have stuff that we deal with. And certainly I have more than just my blindness, but this was obviously my, my towering struggle that I had in my life. Well, for so many years, I've been trying to hide it from people. You know, I was ashamed of it. I was embarrassed of it. My eyes were fading and I didn't really want to embrace that. But all of a sudden, I now needed to walk into class and into interviews with this big German shepherd. All of a sudden, I was forced to embrace the thing that I'd been trying to hide for so long. It forced me to get honest with other people. And that forced me to be really authentic and, you know, come to terms with the fact that I didn't sign up for the situation, but I'm not going to apologize for who I am, right? I didn't I didn't sign up for the situation, but this is a part of me, right? So I have to figure out how I can own it and I can make it look good. And so I'll be damned if I'm going to go around apologizing for it. So the great thing about it is it forced me to, to, to really start loving me it, at first in spite of my imperfections, but eventually because of them. And that, that was a, that was a really big blessing because all of a sudden, you know, how much easier is life when you don't have to, uh, you know, you don't have to keep acting like you're someone that you're not right. Mm -hmm. You can be you unapologetically you and just show up and be who you are and not have to worry about faking it till you make it or anything like that. Yeah. Well, you, you also sound like, uh, at least in the book, Chad, and even some of the stories you and I have talked about since, um, that 
you introduce a little humor because you recognize that people are probably uncomfortable and you almost have an intuitive sense that, okay, there's anxiety here. They're not sure what to make of it. Maybe they're possibly pity. And I I just love how you even start the book with that story, right? Which is, you know, you're sitting there in a conference room being evaluated for an interview of a a pricing model or something. You got your laptop open and, and you're, well, I'll let you finish the story. You tell the story. Or you tell it better than I do. <laughs> well, I'm I'm interviewing with Ben Geestman, who ended up becoming my my mentor, and um, I'm speaking at his wake actually here in, in a month. He ended up oh, passing sorry. due to due to stage four brain cancer. But remarkable, remarkable individual. We're sitting there, and I'm showing him my my financial models that I built for managed services technology deals, and I'm obviously doing it, you know, with just my earpiece and my guide dog and my laptop. And he is blown away because we're talking about complicated financial modeling, whether it's, you know, the ROI or depreciation streams or, you know, base charges with arcs and rooks and all these different complicated financial terms as it relates to structuring managed services deals. And he's just, he's, he's pretty blown away. Right. And so he's like, you know, you know, Chad, you're, you're going to have to not only, do all the technical pieces, but I need you to, to influence executives to take some, some bets, it's, you know, to risk, um, you know, investing in, in certain programs. And these are multi-billion dollar programs. You understand that, Chad? He's like, are you sure you can really do all these things? And I look back at him and I was like, Ben, this stuff is so easy. I can do it with my eyes closed. <laughs> and then <laughs> after I said that, you know, he just, he, he burst into laughter because he was like, you know what? If this dude can can competently do everything that he's doing without being able to see his computer screen, yet be able to joke about the situation in a way that connects with people, he's like, he's going to fit right in. And, and in fact, I, I did ended up having a great career at the company and, and with him. And we won a lot of a lot of business. But obviously, you know, a big part of influencing is being able to read a room, is yep. being able to disarm a situation. And you're absolutely spot on. I think humor is a great, great way to disarm a situation, whether it's the natural anxiety that people have or tension in the room or whatever the case may be. It's, it's one of those go-tos for me, whether I'm in a business meeting or on stage giving a keynote presentation, I love to use humor because it makes, it makes people, it opens up people's minds and it makes you more relatable, especially when you can joke about yourself, right? A little self-deprecating humor yeah. goes a long way and shows that you're real, and shows that people don't have to take, you know, even though we all take our job seriously, you know, I don't take my situation, my blindness so seriously that I can't have a little fun with it either. Sure. So let's go back to, uh, let's go back to the dog, the big German shepherd. I think, uh, you know, a lot of individuals will tell you a lot of single young men will tell you that if you're eager to uh, find uh, a young lady that bringing a nice dog with you can quickly attract attention. <laughs> so, <laughs> right. Like I've got friends. I've, I I've heard up, that. <laughs> <laughs> I have Chad, I had single friends that would go literally borrow a puppy and walk down Newberry street in Boston. Cause yeah. they're like, Oh my God, I'm going to meet all the women I want this way. Yeah. Um, yeah. By the way, this is not intended to be sexist. I think women also like walking with uh, little cute puppies because guys like dogs too, right? Yeah, 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 uh, exactly. So it's a, it's a two-way street, but so talk about how uh, the dogs helped your personal situation a little bit. Well, my social life went up 
And I, I remember I was meeting with a guy and, yeah. and I talk about this in the book. We're at Leader Dogs and he's telling me, he's trying to coach me. He's like, Chad, your personal life's about to change. And I said, yeah, yeah, sure. And he's like, no, you don't understand. I was like, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's it, it'll be fine. He's like, no, let me ask you something, son. He was a Southern guy. He's like, let me ask you something, son. How many people have ever asked to pet your cane? It's like, mm, none, you know, he's like, well, that's exactly my point. So I get back to university with this beautiful 100 pound German shepherd, smartest dog I've ever seen in my life. Incredibly intelligent, phenomenal at his job. And everywhere I go out, like I am stopped every five to 10 steps. People want to pet the dog. People want to learn more about him. All of a sudden I go from, you know, the, the guy who people thought, you know, could be drunk, could be high, whatever, because I couldn't see that well. And I, I really did not use a cane. So, you know, I, I didn't walk flawlessly trying to get around to all of a sudden now is this guy with his German shepherd, obviously people knew I had a vision impairment and I had the, the cutest symbol of my vision impairment with this German shepherd. So we would go out, my buddies and I we would go to the strip place in Knoxville, downtown, go to the you know, clubs and bars and things like that. And after a little while, my, my friends started to get so jealous. They're like, you need to give us your dog. This is, <laughs> you know, can you just wait here for a little while? We want to borrow your dog. Cause they, they wanted to change his name from miles to magnet because, you know, for like a year or two, I don't think I bought my own drinks. The, the women would come up and they would, they would love to talk about the dog. And he was a great little icebreaker. And, uh, and I would, I would tell my friends, look, you know, miles is, you know, all, he's bringing us attention. All you have to do is if you can use your mouth, you're, you're going to be just fine. You don't need to walk around with the dog to, to, to actually benefit from him. Sure. So, uh, Let's talk about the dog a little bit, Chad, because you spent a little time in, in your book talking about it and we've talked about it a little bit. Sure. He's working. The dog's working, right? And so yeah. as a result, there's this delicate balancing act of sort of this means to which to connect with other individuals, but yet also mm-hmm. respecting that relationship so the dog knows that this is, you know, this is not fun time. This is, this is still work. There's, there's a yeah. responsibility here. Yeah. How do you balance that? I mean, it sounds like that's a balancing act too. Yeah. I didn't do so well at it at first because I was a young man with a healthy interest in young women. I would let people pet the dog and harness and I would try and create some separation and say, you know what? Cause you know, they tell you at the school, don't let people pet the dog and harness. And I thought, well, okay, let's just see if it'll work. My, my social life says, let's give it a try. And so I did for a few months and I would take the dog out of harness and have him sit. And, and um, eventually, you know, even out and about whether or not he was in harness, out of harness, whatever, he got to where he would grow attached to, to getting attention when we were out. And that started to create some real problems because he would see people he would recognize or, or want to get attention in a certain situation. And then he would start seeking it instead of, seeking out the obstacle or the item that I, I would tell him to find, whether it's the curb or the stairs or whatever, he would just get, he would get distracted, right? He, he was, his dog brain was not capable of staying on task when there was some love involved. Dogs love getting attention yeah. and he just, he, he couldn't multitask like that. So I ended up learning the hard way after about six to 12 months that that just wasn't possible. I needed to be a little more on the 
you know, the, the stricter uh, working side when, when he was when he was out and about just so that he could stay on point and could stay in focus. And the example that I cite, and I mentioned this in the book, we literally got walked out in front of a bus. He saw yeah. this girl in my building across the street and he just wanted to go over and say hi. And he completely forgot that there was a curb there and there was a, a street and there was an oncoming car. And he was just ready to dart out in front of the bus, which he did. And he was a, a big boy and he dragged me right behind him out in front of a bus. And so you hear this screeching of tires from the bus and other cars. And it was a it was a pretty scary situation. So after that, I learned firsthand that I needed to take a different a, a different approach. And, you know, I'm sorry, you know, as much as I want to improve my social life and allow everyone to say hi to miles the magnet he just he's gonna have to be just kind of look don't touch for yeah. at least a period of time yeah um don't want to turn it sad here uh chad but of course your longevity is longer than these dogs yeah. um, and so you do have to you transition and you you go through what's that like right i mean these are these are this isn't like i mean a lot of us get attached to pets but it sounds like that's 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 a uh, that's a bigger challenge because you're learning to work with each other you guys are partners and they're sort of getting around and um, oh yeah it's a tight bond it's a bond like you don't really have with any you know look your your pets your you know the dogs with me from every meeting every work trip every vacation every you name it right the dog and i are together 100 of the time and so you you read each other you work with each other your your friends your yeah your colleagues because the dog is only as good as our working relationship so when we go somewhere the dog and i have to be in complete sync so that when i am reading the map in my mind of where we need to go the dog's reading my body language reading the obstacles giving me feedback of what's around me and so it's really, you know, dogs work point to point navigation and I have to be sort of the, the map reader, if you will. I have to know generally which direction to go and tell the dog what to look for. And so there's a lot of teamwork involved And the way that the only way that it's successful is if there's that tight bond. Right. The, the dog works for me because of the bond, because of the love, because of the fun. I have to make it fun. There has to be some gamesmanship to it. And so there's that intellectual challenge, but also that real sincere danger that we're in if we. Yep. Oh, Chad. Uh oh. Hopefully Chad will come right back. Apologies. It looks like Chad froze. Um, oh, Chad, hang on one sec. Looks like you froze. You're coming back now. You screw up. All of that is apparent, obviously, to the handler. It creates a. Okay. Can you hear me okay? I can now. Yeah. Sorry about that. You just disappeared for a second. Okay. Did you lose something there? Do I need to repeat anything? <laughs> no, you see, you were just talking about the relationship and how, you know, it's important to the handler and sort of for, for you and the dog. Yeah. Um, so is it, is there a ramp up period when you get a new dog? I mean, it's sort of, obviously there's the emotional anxiety of, of, of letting a dog move on, so to say. Um, but, but the ramp up period has got to be a challenging time too. It is. It's a very tenuous time with a with the new dog because of that transition period. They're trying to figure out what you're about. And so you have to really balance between having the dog respect you so that when you tell them to do something, they know that you mean business and you are the alpha and then balance that with not being a complete jerk. So if you ask the dog to do too much too soon, you know, the dog can think you're a jerk. So you have to, to be very delicate about making sure you don't ask too much too soon from the dog 
so that the dog can always be successful if you have because you have to correct the dog if the dog messes up sure otherwise the dog will view you as 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 kind of being a little bit weak but if you if you're correcting the dog because you're asking too much too soon then the dog's going to think you're you're a jerk so the first 30 to 60 days are extremely fragile that's when the relationship is is good or bad, right? You can make or break the relationship in that first 60 days. And so that's why the schools are strong advocates of having people come on campus and train on campus for the first few weeks so that you can come to the walled garden where the dog can be more successful, right? The dog knows that environment. They've been in that environment for three to six months. It's not a new environment. Like when they come home with you, that is stressful for the dog. So you avoid doing that. And you start off the working relationship in this walled garden where the obstacles that they've seen, they know what they are. It's not too challenging. You can introduce things gradually. And then once you get a, a stronger connection after about a month, then yeah. you, you come home and, and go through yet another transition. The dog doesn't know anybody but you. And that's, that's another really fragile period, making sure that the transition is clean and you take it easy until the dog gets acclimated into the new environment. Yep. Yep. No. Uh, interesting. It's all stuff that one thinks about, but never really learns about. So thanks for sharing. Sure. Uh, so Chad, talk to us about skiing. You're a skier, right? Yeah. Yeah. Who, who would think that a blind guy should, should be skiing, especially down some of the terrain that I ski, but I started skiing about seven years ago. Buddy Mun calls me and says, you know what? Hey, I'm out here in Aspen and I've got a business partner around here who has a ski and ski out condo. And we're thinking it might be good for you to come out and ski. And I said, you know, it just doesn't sound real safe. If I'm being honest, Paul. And uh, he ends up telling me about this program they have out there called challenge Aspen. And I start learning more about it. And so I get really interested. I'm a pretty adventurous soul. And I ended up going to Aspen the next year and, and started really getting into it. And now I'm hooked, right? Last year, uh, probably skied the most that I've skied in, gosh, in, in one year. I got about 15 to 20 days in last year. This year, I got in a couple of weeks. But I went from you know not ever putting on bindings after I went blind to last year skiing black and double black. I think I did my first double black last year. And yeah. so I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, pretty aggressive with it. But it's, it's, it's a great metaphor for life, I think, skiing is because you know, it's, it's normal to be scared. I think everybody looks at the mountain and they're looking down the mountain at 13,000 feet and it's terrifying for a lot of people, but not being able to see can actually be a bit of an advantage in that situation because I'm not looking at what everybody else is looking at. That big picture, big picture sometimes can just be overwhelming. I'm just focused on the next turn. What is the next turn that I need to make? Is it a left? Is it a right? And a lot of times in life, you know, we all have these big, bold visions for ourselves. And if we think about that, when we're facing an obstacle, sometimes it can intimidate us. So if we just bring our attention to the, the next turn, whatever that happens to be in our careers or personal lives, you know, we, we can navigate a lot more successfully if we're able to do that. Yeah, the other thing that you've shared, which I think is a, is a fabulous uh, lesson for all of us is, you know, when you ski, you're skiing with, uh, with others who help you, right? Um, yeah. And it involves a lot of trust. Right. And so, you know, yeah. sometimes it's hard to uh, to accomplish big things, but you can probably do more when you do it with trust and partners, et cetera. Completely. And I'll, I'll echo that a thousand percent. The number of people 
I trust to guide me down those steep terrain is a very, very small list of people. Uh, and I, I want to make sure that we've had a good trip before we, we, we get on the, the double blacks, right? You're not mad at me, or if you are, you're going to tell me, I hope. <laughs> but certainly communication and trust are, are crucial, right? Without trust and strong communication, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of dead on arrival. You know, I, I need to make sure that we establish up front what the cadence is going to be, what the vernacular is going to be. Uh, at what point will I, if there's a, if we have to pull the emergency brake, what is that call? What does that look like? Just yep. getting really super clear about all the instructions. Because when you're out there, you have a split second to react. A lot of people, they ski on the mountain and, you know, they can see the entire mountain. They, they build kind of like if you're, you're driving a car, you know, you, you pick out the line that you're going to follow and you have some skiers that may come in and get in your way and you have to adjust a little bit, but you can get into a rhythm. I can't get into a rhythm because I can't pick out that mental line down the mountain. So I have to just react and I want to get into a rhythm and I try to get into a rhythm, but that, that can, that can get you sometimes. So you, you, you just have to be really agile and nimble and, and able to adapt and, and move you know, on, on a, on an instant, right. Just with very, very limited foresight and in, in, into what's going on. So that, that communication and that trust are crucial when you're skiing. Another thing that's important when you're skiing and you can't see is having a good helmet, right? A good helmet's important <laughs> because there will be crashes, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. So Chad, before we turn to, uh, turn towards return, I guess, towards the professional side of your life, um, I want to just uh, pause and see if you have any suggestions. Uh, my guess is you said you, you continue to uh, listen to books and, and other things. Any that you'd particularly recommend to others? Books? Yeah. Do you have a favorite or, a, or something that you've, uh, you've, you thought would be particularly inspiring or, or an idea worth sharing that others should spend some time on? Aside, of course, from Blind Ambition. Yeah. I think, yeah, the books that that I like, I'm, I'm really big into self help books. The, there, there are a couple of books that I read regularly. I think the, the one that stands out when you ask that question is Difficult Conversations. I think a lot of us, it's one of those things, I don't think we ever arrive at the point where we can handle conflict flawlessly. I think we all could stand to be just a little bit better at handling conflict. It's a fantastic book, talks about how to go into difficult conversations with a learning mindset and how if you go in being curious as opposed to intending to send statements and, and getting the other person to get rid of all the energy that they have and really understanding that person and building empathy with that person, you can have a much more productive dialogue. And I think it's a, it's a good skill to have, but certainly something, you know, in the year that we've all just had, everybody's going through some difficult times, just being better listeners can, can only help us. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Great. Good suggestion. I appreciate it. Uh, yep. It's it's funny. A lot of these webinars I've had uh, that the feedback I get from some of the audiences, we love the book suggestions people give us. And I'm like, really? <laughs> what about the content? What about what I have? <laughs> we love the book suggestions. It's, maybe that's because we're in a pandemic and people have more time to read. They have more time to read. Yeah, maybe. Exactly. Who knows? Who knows what the reasoning is? Uh, all right. So let's turn, uh, let's go back to, uh, to work life and uh, some of the lessons you learned there. Chad, so you end up deciding to uh, to take a little break from from work, so to say, and come to my neck of the woods uh, up here at Harvard. What was yeah, that? I did. What was that about? How did it come? And then 
you know, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll set up uh, the, uh, the crescendo uh, here, which saying that your peers ultimately had you give the closing uh, sort of comments or speech, if you will, uh, at the end of the experience. But how'd you get that in your head that you wanted to come up to Harvard? What did you try to get out of it? And then, of course, tell us how that speech was so influential and impactful on, on you. Okay. So I was at my prior employer and had been, this was one, the one with Ben I'd mentioned in the opening of my book where I was brought on to, to lead the, uh, the, the deal strategy and pricing strategy on these very large and complex multi-billion dollar deals. So had a lot of success there, brought in over $45 billion in contracts. And you know, they asked me like, what can we do for you? You've helped us a lot and we want to help you. You've got obviously a unique story you mentioned earlier. And at this point, I, I've just been acknowledged by the University of Tennessee as an accomplished alumnus there. And so they gave me the accomplished alumni award. And I thought, I don't know, for whatever reason, I'd done these classes like Dale Carnegie and I'd, I'd done those before. I wanted to do something more impactful mm -hmm. and just to have an opportunity to take my learnings to the next level. And for some crazy reason, I said, you know what, send me to Harvard. And for some crazier reason, they said, okay, right? They decided that they would sponsor me and, and send me there. So it was a, a, a bit of a bit of a dare, you know, just to, to try and see, because it, it was a very, if you think about it, right? We were government IT company. They don't typically send people off to these schools. The last guy in the company to do that went to the University of Virginia, UVA, and became a CFO. And so it was a, it was a bit of a long shot for me to ask for something like that. And, but they ended up, you know, we got sign off from the CEO, said it was fine. I ended up going to Harvard and the experience there was, was phenomenal. Obviously, you know, you go there and wasn't like the experience I had previously about what, 15, 16 years ago when I was doing my undergrad, because the technology had improved, books were available electronically. You know, the internet was obviously easier to work with. Uh, everything was just so much easier. And my technology skills were much better too. You know, I was, really good with Excel. We had a lot of, a lot of, uh, a lot of the work involved spreadsheets and financial modeling and those sorts of things. So the, in, the entire experience was, was an incredibly uh, better than, than before when I had to, to go through college without really having access to a lot of those tools. But I think one of the things that struck me through the experience was just how much I was learning from my fellow classmates. And that's the great thing about going to HBS is, you know that the quality of your classmates and professors, everything is, is, is very high level. And so you learn as much from your classmates as you do your professors. And that was a, a really mind-blowing experience for me. And I think that the thing that the real inflection point for me there was, was studying with Bill George in the, the authentic leadership class. And everyone's going through and trying to discover their true north. It's Bill's book and yep. what he teaches there. And it became very obvious to me very quickly that I had been ignoring my true north. I had been internally focused and individually focused on my career for so long, and I'd done well at that, and it had paid me well. And I occasionally had people come up and tell me that I was inspiring. And this happened when I really wasn't trying to do anything. I was just showing up, doing what I had to do. I was doing my job. I was going to my daughter's school to talk to the second grade class or whatever the case may be, and people would tell me that I'm inspiring. And I I really didn't understand how to process that because I wasn't trying to be inspiring. I was just doing what I had to do. And Chad, yeah. When in Bill's class, it became obvious that there's an opportunity here 
for me to do more with my situation. If people found inspiration and motivation out of what I was doing, I needed to be more intentional about it. And so I had this feeling as we're going through class that I was going to be elected as the graduating speaker. So I ended up getting some help with it and writing something and, and kind of rehearsing it before we had even voted, before I was even nominated as the speaker. And so obviously I had this feeling and when it, when it actually happened, I was prepared to give the talk. What I wasn't prepared for was how powerfully it would affect them and me emotionally. One of the guys in my class decided at that point to commission an opera inspired by my talk and my, my life story. And that was, that was very humbling. If, if I'm being honest, I didn't expect any of that. But the thing that really blew my mind was how much it helped me, how much I got out of using my greatest struggle in my life to help other people. And it was, it was overwhelming, right? I don't, not a, not a warm and fuzzy guy really, but it was very moving for me. You know, I couldn't help but be moved when I helped people in the stories I had when people would come up and talk to me afterwards. It was just, it was so touching for me personally that it actually made going blind worth it, which is a really bizarre thing to think and say out loud. And since then, obviously I've been focused on being more intentional with that. I've started giving motivational talks all over the world. And, and that's where Blind Ambition, the book came from, is, is trying to embark on this next phase, which is taking this gift of blindness that I got and that came in some really crummy wrapping paper and, and trying to help others with it. Yeah. So uh, thanks for uh, bringing up that the, the wrapping paper analogy, because I think one of the things that your book does a great job on Chad, lots of good lessons and, and, and pearls of wisdom throughout. So definitely worth reading the whole thing. But towards the end, you talk about all of us have crummy wrapping paper wrapped on something. Yeah. But open it up. There may be a nice gift in there. Yeah. Well, a lot of times we get the most fulfillment from the greatest struggles in our life. If we can figure out how to mine. And then this is what, what Bill talks about and discover your true north. If you can unpack the things in your life that have been struggles for you, could be personal struggles, could be professional struggles, things that have, have left a little bit of scar tissue and you can figure out how to turn that into a profession, a purpose, a pastime, a, a passion. You know, once you start connecting the dots between that and what you do on a day-to-day -day basis, right? You start to get this beautiful intersection of purpose, passion, and profession. And, and that's really where you know, it's, it's this, um, it's this, it's this great place where you don't feel like you're, it's, it's effortless, right? You don't feel like you're, you're working because you're doing what you're meant to do. Um, you're fulfilling your why. And it's, a, it's, it's an incredibly powerful feeling. Yeah. So Chad, we all have challenges. You've got to still have challenges, right? I mean, it sounds wonderful. You've done all you've adapted. You're doing great. Everything's wonderful. What's still hard for you? Well, yeah, a lot of stuff is still hard, right? Um, uh -huh. It's not that stuff is now easy. I, I figured out the technology. There are days that, you know, new new tools come out and they're they're not, you know, they're not flawless. They don't work flawlessly. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, life doesn't go as we expect. COVID happened. Stuff still happens. I think the thing that I've I, I've I've learned and and maybe got a little bit better muscle memory than most people is is how I respond. And it's all about the stories that I choose to tell myself. I've learned 
that how I frame a situation to myself, the way that I attach meaning to events determines whether or not I bounce back or I stay trapped. And yeah. so I've really indoctrinated myself in, into this idea that, you know what, I can't control everything around me. I'm going to do my best to manage. But one thing I can control are the ways that I choose to narrate situations to myself. And I am going to be intentional about that. And if I cannot change a situation, then I have to figure out how I'm going to frame it to myself. What's the story that I'm telling myself about that situation? How can I make that situation look good? And so if we can all identify ways that we could make unchangeable facts in our lives look good, whatever good is. Yeah. And it could be this big, bold vision that's nothing close to what we have today. But if we cannot at least reimagine what greatness looks like with those unchangeable facts and odds of us accepting those facts are very, very low. But if we can start reimagining our future vision for ourselves, including these undesirable things, these undesirable circumstances, then we can start getting some motivation to change the things that are inside our sphere of influence that we need to change in order to drive towards those goals. And that can move us towards acceptance. Yeah. Well, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting, Chad, because I think one of the reasons we got connected by a mutual friend was both of us think about navigating uncertainty in different mm -hmm. ways. Right. I come okay. at a multi lens view. You've come at it with the, hey, you got to think about the mindset around it, which is effectively look at the situation through a different view, perhaps. Yep. Um, yep. And so, you know, navigating uncertainty is a commonality of our of our relative desires to focus in certain ways. The other thing I that I that I spend some time thinking and writing about is how focus can be a negative. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's two focus can can be a two-edged sword on one side you can say deeply focused that's great but deeply mm -hmm. focused is the equivalent of broadly ignoring right i mean those are two the same yeah. things right yeah. you, could, you know deeply yeah. focused so my guess is uh, that you would say vikram that logic resonates with me uh for different reasons. So I'm curious how you think about getting multiple perspectives, diversity of views, et cetera. You talk a lot about that um, also uh, in sort of the wrap up of your book, but but maybe reflect on that a little bit for us. Well, I think diversity of, of perspectives and thought, that's what drives innovation. We see that at Red Hat where I work. We have an open source software development model we're consistently rated as one of the world's most innovative companies. And I think a lot of it has to do with diversity of thought that's in our software development lifecycle. So we, we harness innovation from the open source community. So if you think about it, you know, just a quick analogy to help explain it. If you think about a bottle of water, why do people buy a bottle of water when the water's free? Well, you know, they pay because someone goes out and collects the water and you know, from a mountain spring, they sanitize it and package it in this easy to consume container. Well, Red Hat does the very same thing, but with open source software code. Our open source software code is the water. It's freely available. We go out there, we collect it, we sanitize it, we battle test it, we make sure it's enterprise grade. We put it in a product, we take projects and create products from them. We make them enterprise grade, support them and all of that. Well, the open source software development community is not limited by job titles and, and things like that. They don't care what color you are, what gender you are, how old you are, what your job title is, any of that. It's about diversity of thought. And we've seen in our experience at, at Red Hat that it, it drives innovation and that has continued to allow us to thrive over the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years. 
Well, the same is true in life, I think. I, I have a tendency to want to see out diverging points of view uh, because, you know, there, there are things that we're, we all miss, right? We all have biases and, and tendencies in our perspectives that are the collection of the experiences in our lives. And so there are things that we're going to miss. And so I think it's important to seek out opposing points of view and not just what is your opposing point of view, but how did you arrive at that point of view? And what am I missing, right? That's the question that I keep asking myself is, gosh, if, if me and this person are genetically basically the same, how do they think so differently than me? What am I missing in my life that I haven't factored into my point of view? And, and what, what can I glean from this so that I can have a more informed point of view? And so I completely agree. You have to look at it from different angles and figure out what makes the most sense to you at a given point in time. Yep. So I've got a couple of questions that have come in and we got, we're running out of time, but I want to sneak a couple of men that have come to me here. Sure, sure. First one, uh, Chad, uh, it's funny, this one got sent to me anonymously, but I'll ask it. Uh, what do you miss the most? What do I miss the most? I assume that means what do you miss from, from a vision sense? But... Yeah, I would say the thing that I miss the most, it's something I never had, and that's seeing my kids. That's probably the thing I miss the most. I've never seen my kids or my wife. So seeing my family would be at the top. Wow. Yeah. Um, Being real. <laughs> no, I gotcha. It's a, it's a touching statement. I understand it. Um, so uh, the, the other question actually is about family too, which is actually yep. in some sense is related, which is um, does it make your family relationship, sorry, I'm reading it down from my phone. Does it make your family relationship more meaningful when there isn't uh, sort of the, the perception that drives it and it's more meaning and, and deeper, if you will. Yeah, I certainly see people more for who they are as opposed to how they look. So that is a byproduct of my situation. I'm not biased by what my eyes tell me. You know, when my wife and I met, I wasn't looking at how her makeup looked or her hair or anything like that. I was just, I was blown away by how bold and passionate she was and courageous, articulate, and smart, and all those things, and instead of looking at how she was dressed. And certainly in, in business meetings and in life in general, right, with my family, I'm not looking at at, um, at, at any of the, maybe the superficial things that, that people look at. So I can see inside people in a more focused way than, than I could before when I could see. Mm -hmm. um, another question. Sorry, this is random, but I'm going to ask it because it's fun. Do you have a stronger sense of smell after you lost your sight? Yeah, you focused more on the other senses. So if you think about what they say, what, what was it, like 70 or 80%, I don't remember the exact number, of what you consume in terms of information comes in from your eyes. So if you think about you know, how, much, how much capacity do you free up uh, when you, you lose your, your main sense of eyesight? So you have the same amount of brain capacity. You're spreading it out over four senses. You pay more attention to it. I wouldn't say they get better. I would just say that you become more present with each of the senses that you have remaining. Mm -hmm. Gotcha. Um, is there a technology that you think is particularly useful? Yeah. There, we actually talk about that in the book a little bit, but I'll, since someone's asking, I might as well let you. Yeah. So there's things like the iPhone and, and Apple Watch and all those have built-in accessibility technology. It's called voiceover, which has been absolute game-changing. Obviously, the computers have, have been... Um, in flight for a while, but the iPhone is, is game changing too, because it's a platform. If you can drive something to that platform, it becomes inherently success, uh, accessible. So think about, you know, operating your 
home theater appliances or your car or your security system or your thermostat, things that you would have to, you, would, you couldn't see to operate. You would have to either learn where the buttons are on the remote or on the thermostat or things like that. Now, all of a sudden, if you can drive the technology to the iPhone, it's inherently accessible. So it opens up so much potential to interact with so many devices that were previously inaccessible. Yeah, well, I, you say it jokingly, actually, Chad, but I, I think you're probably right. Uh, you said there's never been a better time to go blind. No, this is the time. I mean, people don't have to worry. I'm not taking applications or anything, but it's a good time. Yeah, <laughs> mainly because of the technology, right? It's sort of yeah. sort of the accessibility. And, and, you know, we all talk about how technology has lots of great things it brings, and sometimes it brings some negatives and et cetera, yeah. with the tracking and surveillance, et cetera. Yeah. But, on the whole, wow, what an amazing set of capabilities and independence that it's providing, right? Completely, completely. It, 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 it really is a, a phenomenal time, you know, at, at this point. And obviously, we're, we're hopeful that with, uh, with some of the, the medical advances, too, that, that regaining eyesight is not too far off in the future as well. And for some people, that's, that's becoming more of a, of a, re, of a reality than, uh, than we thought maybe even 10 or 20 years ago. So it, it is an exciting time for sure. Yeah, good. All right. So, Chad, we're, we're basically out of time, but I want to let you uh, share any last tidbits that you'd like to share. Uh, specifically, uh, obviously, I'm going to I'll jump up and down and tell everyone the book I'm holding it up is definitely worth reading. Um, it's a it's a heartfelt sort of memoir, leadership and self-help book all in one. Um, and, uh, you know, it does actually provide wonderful context and perspective on life. And a lot of us can get sort of caught up with little challenges and, and uh, you know, Chad's story of overcoming a, a relatively large challenge uh, and continuing to, to progress positively through it was really inspiring, honestly. Uh, and so I've really enjoyed the book. I'm, I'm thankful for the conversations I've had with Chad and enjoyed getting to know him and becoming friends with him. But, uh, but Chad, any, any last thoughts you want to share with everyone? Yeah, I, I think um, in closing, I would just say that, you know, life is life happens to all of us, right? All of us can find legitimate reasons to give up or legit, legitimate reasons to fail. And so we just have to really, we have to come to terms with the fact that the biggest influence in your life is you. I'm the biggest influence in my life. And so I could sit around and make excuses, you know, and, and talk about, how it's, it's unfair. And all of us can do that to an extent, but that doesn't really take us where we want to go. I'm not responsible for all of my circumstances, but I have to be accountable for my life and its outcomes. It's my life. I have to own it. It's your life. You have to own it. So, you know, all you can do is, is own it, grab the bull by the horns and, and try and figure out how to make your situation, whatever it is, look as good as you can. Awesome. Well, Chad, thank you for taking the time. Thanks for writing this great book. Uh, I'm looking forward to future conversations you and I will yeah, have. Too, man. But, but uh, all right. Thanks very much. Yep. Thank you. All right. Thanks, everyone. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Think for Yourself podcast. And please do subscribe to the podcast series on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, or Spotify. 